Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Gretchen Burns-Bergman, who is the Executive Director and Co-Founder of A New Path and uh, Moms United Against uh, the War on Drugs. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Gretchen Gretchen Burns-Bergman, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Gretchen? I'm good, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thanks for being on the show. Tell me a little bit, what is A New Path? Well, it's, it actually stands for Parents for Addiction Treatment and Healing, and it's a, a nonprofit uh, organization, grassroots organization. We started in 1999. Um, parents who have children who have addictive illness, but more than that, who have been caught up in the criminal justice system. And so we we started the organization to advocate for therapeutic rather than punitive drug policies. Um, specifically, uh, at that time, it was uh, treatment instead of incarceration for nonviolent drug offenders, again, because so many of our kids had uh, been caught up in the system that way. My own son uh, was uh, behind bars, uh, cycling throughout the system for actually 10 years of his life. And we we saw firsthand that this was certainly the wrong way to do it and that it, it exacerbates the problem and um, it never addresses the core issue but um, teaches a person um, a lot of really bad things about how to survive behind bars and, and, of course, the pain that the family goes through and really the waste of human life. So that's that's why we started the organization in 1999 and, um, and it's really expanded. Um, We should probably call it People for Addiction Treatment and Healing because um, not all of our uh, members are parents, but certainly people who believe in human rights issues, which this is a human rights issue. And then um, three years ago, I started a campaign um, that you mentioned, the Moms United and the War on Drugs campaign. And again, that's, that's moms because we're using the moral authority of moms who have had in past history uh, uh, a lot of push and a lot of uh, strength in changing laws that affect our, our family members. And so it's mothers and others really that are working to end the violence, the mass incarceration, the accidental overdose deaths that are a part of our punitive prohibitionist policies. And that campaign now has k- taken off. It's um, We now have 21 states represented um, and uh, so that's that's really moving forward. And, again, it's all advocacy work, education and advocacy. Well, I know that Moms United is on Facebook because um, I'm a member on Facebook. I think I liked your page. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing that. So, yes, it is mothers and others. Anyone can uh, support uh, this group. And well, why why would moms be against the war on drugs instead of in favor of the war on drugs? Well, because we feel, you know, like in the 30s, uh, mothers were instrumental in ending uh, alcohol prohibition, and and, um, they actually were partially responsible for starting prohibition, but then they realized that it did nothing but promote, um, you know, gangland violence and uh, corruption. And so they, a band of mothers got together to end prohibition. And that's that's sort of the power, be, you know, taking a page from history that, that helped me to begin this, um, this campaign, um, seeing that picture of a mother holding, you know, her children close to her with her hand out to, to end prohibition. Um, the, the reason is the same. It's not that we, you know, love drugs, but, but that we see that, uh, that, that our laws and policies about drug use and drug addiction are more harmful uh, oftentimes than the drugs themselves. So it is really to you know protect our families, uh, uh, secure better futures for for our our children and families and our communities. Well, there's a lot of mothers and parents uh, that 
support the war on drugs because they think it's a good idea. They think it prevents their children from using drugs. And how, how do you address them? And uh, how do you convince them that that's not necessarily the right idea? Well, you know, it, it we've got a 40-plus years of failed war on drugs that uh, really it hasn't worked. Um, it, it You know, since Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971, um, drugs are now cheaper, easier to get, um, uh, more uh, uh, potent than ever before. And so, I mean, clearly it hasn't worked, and we've spent over a trillion dollars on this war on drugs. So, you know, I mean, I think... I think that if people look at the facts and they look at the situation, it just simply has not worked, and it's 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 been a waste of money, and it's certainly been a waste of human potential, and and resources. So, um, I know that that the natural inclination is for you to say, well, we I I want to keep drugs away from kids, but and I want the same thing. And I don't promote drug drug use and or uh, drug abuse or drug addiction. But um, but I think that we need to have honest approaches, and we need to pour our resources and our finances into um, research, prevention, um, uh, harm reduction strategies that keep people alive for the cure, if you will. Um, and so, you know, when I when I speak to groups of people oftentimes I met with that same question I mean how why would you want drugs to be easier for kids to get a hold of or uh, or, or aren't we sending the wrong message what about the kids and, and the answer is all about I would say it is all about the kids you know we um, we need to we see right now that if you talk to high school uh, kids and you say what is your easiest drug for you to get a hold of they don't say alcohol and tobacco. Um, and those are legal substances, right? They're mm-hmm. legal and they're controlled and regulated. Um, they say uh, marijuana. Marijuana is the easiest. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, what we're doing right now is not working. So we, we it, I would much rather see marijuana legalized, regulated, uh, controlled, taxed, use that money to to put into research about drug addiction. We know, we know far too little about drug addiction, and we've used that old hammer approach to it, you know, just don't do it, or the Nancy Reagan, just to say no, which clearly clearly didn't work, just makes it more enticing for kids. Um, our, our approach is more the just say no, K-N-O-W, let's talk honestly about drugs and drug use and drug addiction. And um, bring bring teenagers who already know an awful lot about drugs. They've already been experimenting into the conversation about you know how do we handle this crisis? And 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 drug use is it is somewhat of an epidemic and a crisis. We're losing so many people to overdose deaths. And um, so I'm not minimizing the importance of it all. Certainly because I'm a mother of two children, um, two children now. You know not children anymore in other people's eyes, one's 38 and one's 42, but who have um, addictive illness. Um, my older son does is in long-term recovery. He's a drug and alcohol counselor, um, but the other one still struggles. Um, so I know an awful lot about um, drug addiction that I never intended to know, mm-hmm. um, but, but um, now we want to use that knowledge to find better ways of dealing it with this and and to certainly reduce the harms associated with drug use. Um, this just brings to mind, I, I don't know if you ever saw the South Park episode called Butt Out, where the uh, anti-cigarette crusade came to the uh, school to tell all the kids how bad cigarettes were? I, I didn't, but I have heard other people mention it, yeah. Yeah, the first thing the kids did after they heard the lectures was go out and try cigarettes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's not the approach. Um what you said is makes much more sense of getting kids involved in the dialogue of what they actually think instead of telling them what they ought to think. Right. Well, and it also sort of keeps widening this generation gap. I mean, it seems hypocritical that they all know that I mean, uh, particularly marijuana. It's pretty uh, widespread. A lot of adults use it, and a lot of adults use it fairly responsibly. Kids know that. So then, when when you're trying to scare kids and and and, and you know, 
say the first time you ever use it, you'll get addicted and, 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 and do that kind of um, uh, insincere um, and scare tactic drug education. They, they just, we push them further away. They see the hypocrisy. So I think we really need to say this is what this drug does. This is what that drug does. Certainly mixing those may be the last, you know, may may cause you to overdose. And, and just really engage them in conversation. I always say let's talk with the the um, youth instead of at them um, and, you know, draw them into the conversation in a more, uh, you know, in a better way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even for parents that aren't currently using marijuana or other drugs um, and other things. Um, We know from study after study that um, the the people that are most likely to use drugs are young people. Um, And, you know, people go through a period, they sow their wild oats, they get it out of their system, they mature out of it. That's what Stanton Peel likes to call it, maturing out. Um, and you know, lots of people used marijuana in college, and they don't use it anymore. It's it's a very common thing, and it's not it's not this progressive pathway into heroin addiction uh, that you know gets painted sometimes. Well, you know, and that's always an interesting one for me because both of my my kids, you know, I would have said at one point, yeah, they used marijuana first, and then they graduated to heroin which turned out to be both of their drug of choice, and they didn't use together. They both came to that point, you know, on their own separate paths. And, um, you know, and I remember smelling pot and hating it, and to this day, I mean, I don't I don't like it, but I, uh, but I still think it's the, of all the drugs out there, it seems to be the most, the most harmless. Uh, it, um, it, nobody's overdosing on, on marijuana, and um, nobody has anger attacks over when they're, you know, under the influence of marijuana. And, you know, there's a, so I would, although I don't like it, I can see that um, it is not Satan's uh, Satan's drug or whatever that that it's made out to be. Um, But, you know, certainly back to the gateway, um, my my kids were also uh, trying alcohol, it turns out. They were getting into the liquor cabinet on their own and, um, and so we, I don't think any gateway uh, theory has ever been proven, but what we, what we do see is it's certainly a gateway into the criminal justice system. You know, and my son was kicked out of high school for having marijuana in his locker in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, like many others who got kicked out and sent to the bad boy school, you know, did end up uh, in prison. And, you know, all for just, you know, uh, having marijuana. Now, my my son turned out to have uh, addictive illness. Both of them did. Um, and but it's I you know you look at ten kids. Ten kids are experimenting. Uh, most of them will grow out of it, uh, walk away from it, maybe not even like it. Um, but my kids it, it, both got addicted, and that's you know that's what they say. One or two out of ten are going to. Um, I think that my kids have a, pre, uh, a genetic predisposition to it. Um, they come there in the, in the paternal side. There's, you know, it's a Scotch-Irish <laughs> background, rich with a lot of um, uh, problems with addiction and alcohol. Um, so, um, you know, that's that's what happens. And not every kid that tries is going to uh, have their lives ruined. But the point is, even those kids like mine who are good kids who just can't walk away from it, who get stuck in this disease, they're good kids. They're smart kids. They're worthwhile kids. They're not throwaway kids. And they're um, and that's what we tend to do with these kinds of policies. We're just throwing people away as if they're bad people doing bad things rather than people who have, you know, who have some problems and need some help finding um, finding solutions so they can uh, un- uh, get unstuck, you know. Their life has become stuck because they don't know a way out of the maze. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's questionable just how much effect the genetics have, but before we go down that path, I want to uh, Take a, a sidetrack. Um, did both of your children uh, get involved with uh, the criminal justice system? 
No, only one. Uh, well, yes, the second one actually did get Proposition 36, which is a really wonderful irony since I was a state chair of Proposition 36 in 2000 uh, in California, which mandates treatment instead of incarceration for nonviolent drug offenses. The, the, the other, you know, weird irony of that is that he got Proposition 36 after it was being funded. It, there was a five-year uh, uh, funding uh, of, of Prop 36, and after the, and we kept fighting for more funding, and and uh, and you know, in the end, by the time he got it, he got Prop 36 because it's still on the books, right? Mm-hmm. But he didn't get any kind of real treatment. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, so so he did he did, but he didn't spend time behind bars. Because I think there's a real argument that the criminal justice system, that the that prison and reform schools are are a gateway to hard drugs and to addiction and to all kinds of other problems. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and and my again, my son, uh, he was arrested. My older son was arrested for possessing marijuana, and uh, he learned to shoot heroin behind bars. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so and not and we're not seeing, just seeing that a, their addiction exposed. I mean, think about it. You're 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 behind bars now. You're labeled a bad person, right? Mm-hmm. And and you and and people need to have an identity. Identity, plus which they're in an environment where you know you have to choose a side. You have to you 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 you're either a victim or you're you're a part of a, a group of people who, who help you to protect your back, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I mean, they're 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 learning all kinds of terrible lessons, but they're not getting any help finding out their core reasons why they use or how they can find ways not to use. So so they use. I mean, and and um, and my son said it was easier for him to get drugs behind bars than it was on the streets. Um, and there's a there's a a big drug trade behind bars. So um, it 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 certainly does nothing to um, answer the problems of drug use and addiction. Um, and it and it does a lot to make the situation a lot worse. And you know, I say when my son came out, and again, he's got um, almost ten years now uh, uh, um, in in recovery. But it, it took a long time. And and uh, he, you know, at one point he just decided, okay, I think maybe I can I can find my way out of the addiction. Whatever it was that that made that triggered him finding a way to 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 uh change his life that way but it took him a lot longer than to stop seeing himself as an ex-convict that simply didn't deserve a better life right that, mm-hmm. because he'd been labeled uh, a bad kid i mean it's such a waste uh and, and it's such a tragic um uh saga for for families to go through as well and then you come out and now you've got a felony drug arrest and you've got to try to find a job and you've got to try to find housing, and you've got to, and 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 so many of these things are taken away. The collateral damages of having a, a felony, a drug felony arrest on on your record is is tremendous. So we've set up uh, not only only roadblocks to recovery, but roadblocks to reintegration, to to have really people being able to even have and work towards a fulfilling life. Well, to me, the real killer there is that you're disqualified from federal financial aid for college. Isn't what that you? just amazing? I know. And in some states, from voting. It's, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, there's, there's, here's the good news. I mean, all this dismal stuff we're talking about, and it's a funny way to say it, but there's so many families now. One in four families are dealing with, with um you know, severe addictive uh, addiction problems. Um, but but more and more families are also dealing with a, a family member who's behind bars. So people are really understanding now the situation. And whereas before people would say, well, oh, you know, just just um, let them hit their bottom and they'll come around or, or, or send them to prison. That'll clean them up, and which is just, you know, absurd. Of course it doesn't clean them up, you know. Um, it's, uh, but, but, now, because so many people are actually experiencing this, um, it's e- much easier for us to 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 reach people and for people to speak out because it's been somewhat normalized. Before, it was this deep, dark, dirty secret, and you know, and still is. I mean, there's still so much stigma and discrimination here, but it's it's certainly improved just because there's so many people who have experienced it and who really see the need 
to, to make changes. I mean, our polls are showing very high now uh, uh, about wanting to legalize marijuana. And I don't think that's because everybody loves marijuana, but they, but they see how destructive our way of handling um, these problems have been. Um, so, you know, that, that the, the, good news in, and the good news and the bad news in one big wallop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't smoke marijuana myself. Um, yeah, it makes me severely depressed as soon as I smoke it. So it's just not, it's not a good drug for me to have fun with. You know, I wish sometimes that I could enjoy it like I did when I was 20, but I've never enjoyed it again since then. So I've just, you know, not smoked it in decades. But I'm totally in favor of legalization because I see so many people, well, particularly I deal with alcohol, and I know a lot of people that have severe alcohol problems that can use cannabis substitution, and they don't they don't drink anymore. They get their prescription for medical marijuana. They leave the alcohol alone. They don't go through the withdrawal anymore. They don't get in the bar fight. Right, right. Well, you know, and... And who are we to say what 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 works for one person, what works for another? And, you know, it it goes back to that sort of basic human rights premises. Why why should I dictate what somebody else puts in their mouth? I mean, I I get about drug drunk driving. Of course, we all get that. You're not, mm-hmm. you know. We, but I, you know, I don't care if somebody goes home and has a a joint because that relaxes them, or goes home and has a glass of wine. Because I, I mean, I really don't care, and nor do I think that it's my business, and certainly I don't think it's the government's business, you know. So um, we, uh, there's always judgmental. Um, it, it's it's like legalized um, stigma and discrimination. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and 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 we really we really need to change that. That um, it, you know, along the same line. If you go to a doctor and you get a prescription for an opiate that, you know, takes away your pain, it's fine. If you go and get um, marijuana because that also alleviates your pain, that's not okay. Well, who's to say that? I mean, certainly some of the drugs that we get from from doctors are a lot more damaging and can be a lot more lethal. Than, than than marijuana. Well, absolutely. Um, any of the opioid painkillers, um, I would not recommend them as the uh, first line of defense. You know, marijuana, cannabis is a much safer painkiller. You know, in most circumstances, in so, in some cases, opioid painkillers are justified. But you know, taking them as the first line of defense and the amount of overprescription that we've seen in recent years, well, has led to the overdose epidemic, I believe. Well, it certainly it certainly added to those numbers and made it a, into a, a definite crisis. Plus, which you know, once you, uh, you know, uh, as my son says, once you've tasted the devil, you know, narcotic. When, you, when he's talking about people who who get op, uh, oxycontin from a doctor, but then then don't can't get it anymore. Well, they they turn around to to heroin, street heroin, real quickly, and that, and we're seeing this again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then people don't know how to how to mix drugs correctly, and we're and we're just flat out losing people. And yet, we're not doing anything like what we were, are working with 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 a new path and with um, uh, uh, the Moms United campaign. One of the things that we're we're really working on is is Good Samaritan laws and greater um, uh, ability to access uh, naloxone to reverse overdose. Uh, deaths and you know and we really need to look at all kinds of uh, harm reduction measures because well you, I mean you know the numbers that, that that people are dying of overdose as much as they're dying and in some cases in many states more so than than in a vehicular accident you know so mm-hmm. so I mean this is something that we we can't just um, you know, uh, ignorantly pontificate about. We really need to do something because we're losing whole generations of young people, and um, so it, so that's one of the, one of the things that that we work on. And um, and and of course, uh, the other is is, is really getting uh, parents and uh, people in recovery, parents, uh, family members, to speak out and, 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 again, demand that they be a part of this discussion because this involves our families and our communities. And 
you know, you said you were on the, the Moms United uh, Facebook page, and I don't know if you went on the website as well, but we have a um, Moms United to End the War on Drugs Bill of Rights where we have 12, you know, uh, declarations of what our rights should be. And, you know, the last one is we have the right to speak out publicly to end the war on drugs because of the damage it's done to our communities for the sake of our children and future ge- generations. And, you know, in the first ones we have the right to nurture our offspring and to advocate for their um, care and safety. It seems silly that we should have to, you know, declare a bill of rights, but we've been watching our our rights as parents and as human beings and citizens eroded constantly, and we haven't spoken out about it because of the stigma. And um, so that's, you know, one one of the things that we're working on is that, and I'd love for your uh, listeners to go on and sign that petition. It, it, it's, it's all kind of sensible stuff, and you think, well, why are you writing it down? Well, the, tr- the truth is a lot of these things aren't being taken away from us now. People are uh, losing their uh, parental rights because they're found with marijuana in their system. So children are being taken from their homes. And and in, in my case, you know, my uh, children taking from taken from you and and put in, in in prison where they you know where they're in this violent atmosphere and and can't access the the resources they need to address a core issue of addiction um so uh it, it's it's when you when you suddenly open your eyes and you say these rights are just eroding right and left because mm-hmm. of this war on drugs that has absolutely, utterly failed, and we know that. And, you know, and we're also coming to a point, I think, where so many people have experienced this and the devastation of the war, not just in the United States, but in Latin America, and you have uh, countries who are really speaking outwardly about legalization and decriminalization because we must end this war on drugs, which is really a war on our own families and our own peoples. Um, that, that I think that we're sort of at a, um, a place, and I again, I've been doing this since 1999, and that's how long I've been a, a, an active advocate um, uh, for this. And you know, and I've seen some changes, and I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful um, that while while we're at such a, a low point in terms of our uh, over incarceration and, and our overdose deaths, we're also at the cusp of change because we just it just has to change. And, and, you know, we have examples now of countries like Portugal who have decriminalized, and the results have been very good. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, we're not just saying we must stop something. We're saying, well, here's an alternative that, that will work. <laughs> you know? I want to go back to something that you mentioned a little earlier, and you mentioned naloxone. <clears throat> which is, a lot of people might know under the name of Narcan, right. and this reverses an opioid overdose. And mm-hmm. don't believe bad movies like Pulp Fiction where you see somebody get shot with adrenaline. That doesn't work. They just made that up for the movie. But naloxone can and does reverse opioid overdoses because um, opioids stop you from breathing. Um Naloxone knocks the opioids off the receptors on your brain, and you start breathing again. You, mm-hmm. People and who are dead. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing about it that it seems to be dangerous. That I mean, it, it, so why we don't have why a doctor who's prescribing oxycontin to a patient doesn't also say, and here you should also have this in your medicine cabinet, or why when somebody's released from a um, a, a recovery home or rehabilitation. Why they're not sent home with that? Because they've already told them relapse is part of recovery, right? We know it's a chronic relapsing disease. Mm-hmm. So why don't? Why wouldn't? Uh, you know? Why wouldn't I have a prescription for um, naloxone and have that in my medicine cabinet? Why wouldn't? Why wouldn't first responders all have it? Why? You know? Why isn't there greater education about it? Uh, it's again the only answer that I can see is stigma that somehow we're going to make it easier for people to use by saying hey there's also something that could save your life if you do overdose Um, and that's you know and that's a key issue about why we need harm reduction policies in place 
um, yeah, it's 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 amazing to me that uh, that uh, it's so difficult to even um, get greater access to naloxone. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things we're working on. And, and apparently, you can reverse an overdose if you catch it soon enough. And that's why the 911 laws, uh, Good Samaritan laws, are so important. It's so important to make that phone call immediately um, because you've got a couple of minutes where you really can save a life. And people are not making that call because they're afraid of, of arrest. And you know, and I think that's pretty documented. That that's one of the reasons that people aren't making the call, or that you know, teenagers that are partying drop their friend off in front of the hospital instead of taking them into the hospital and giving them a better chance of surviving, or just leaving them to sleep it off, which which would have happened to my son. I would have lost him a couple of times had there not been somebody who got him to. Um, you know services. Um, first time was his uh, girlfriend's mother, who was luckily a nurse that that stepped up and and got him um, to the hospital. So um, it's yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's such an important issue. Yeah, where I am in New York City, we have the Good Samaritan Law, and what that means if your friend is dying of an overdose, if your friend is overdosing. You can call the cops and they won't arrest you for, they won't bust you for drugs. That's what this Good Samaritan law means. You, you can call 911 safely if someone is overdosing. And I also want to put in a little plug here. Um, <clears throat> where, I, where I work at my day job at Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, you can come in, you can get naloxone training, Narcan overdose prevention training. You can get a kit. Uh, you can either get the intramuscular kit where you uh, get the needle and shoot somebody in the arm or the butt or uh, the thigh, or you can get the intranasal because people like me don't feel comfortable around needles so much. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I've handed a lot out, but I've never shot anybody off or myself. But mm-hmm. uh, so um, I'm going to say a couple things about New York City. New York City is doing some good things. Um, you can get uh, Narcan training at Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center uh, and a couple other places, several of the other harm reduction cities, centers here like Citywide, I believe, and New York Harm Reduction Educators also distributed. I think Vocal does. A lot of places you can access it here. And in New York City, they are going into the prisons and teaching people about Narcan and overdose prevention in the prisons and also in drug treatment. Uh, when before people are released from drug treatment, they're going in and starting to teach people about Narcan and the possibility of overdose. And um, the most overdoses occur when people are released from incarceration because their tolerance is down. They don't realize it, and they try to shoot the same amount of dope, and then they're dead. Well, that's you know, and that's one of the great arguments against flash incarceration, which always comes up here. You know, uh, in in California, they were saying that they they wanted the drug courts to have the right to flash incarcerate and I you know and 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 with prop 36 we we fought against that because it doesn't seem to do anything but make people feel like okay I'm a loser they got me again so but then they have a weekend free of their drug and they come right back out and and use and then overdose because the tolerance level is down and um you know I'm I'm happy to hear about New York and I was aware California's a funny state, you know. We, we're uh, we're so long and narrow <laughs> that um, there were some really good things going on in the San Francisco area, but um, uh, more forward thinking and harm reduction uh, policies. But in San Diego, we're we're in, in Orange County. We're kind of in the uh, the real the conservative uh, kind of belly of the beast. <laughs> it's harder to to promote things. But California did get a good Sam bill. Um, last year, and and um, Denise Cullen with uh, Grasp, who's also one of our Moms United, uh, to the end the war on drugs. Um, she's on our steering committee, um, and I both testified for two years, and and uh, didn't pass the first time, but it did pass finally this year, or in 2012. And I, um, but we do not have Narcan uh, attached to that bill, so now we still have to be fighting for access for Narcan. I just wanted to mention that Denise Cullen from Grasp was on one of our previous episodes. You can go into the archive and listen to that. That was a really good show. Um, yeah, and it's important. Everyone needs access to Narcan these days. Um, are you familiar with the Project Lazarus in uh, North Carolina? I think it's North Carolina. Yeah, it's North Carolina. 
um, they've got a really good overdose prevention program going there. Um, you know, I've heard of Project Lazarus, but I can't say that I'm familiar with it, um, or I just kind of not bringing it up right now. But please tell me more about it. Well, they had the the most overdoses in the country in that area, and the most uh, opioid painkiller abuse um, some years ago. And they took it as really seriously as an issue, and started talking to the doctors about, uh, you know, teaching their patients about using opiates properly and, you know, about overdose and, you know, introducing Narcan to everybody that got the prescriptions for opioid painkillers and it just totally reversed the trend and now they have a very low overdose rate. Well, I think that's what we're seeing with all the Narcan distribution um, sites Uh, and, and, you know, the key issue here is is treating somebody uh, with a drug problem like a person. Like a real person, that's that's a, a, they're a wonderful, valuable person who just happens to have a problem with drugs, rather than as some kind of lower class, um, throwaway um, individual. And and it, so, in, with all of the harm reduction, with needle exchange programs, it seems to be the first line of conversation, and then then and, and it can engage people to find uh, and access the services that they need um, and, and make, to come out of there, to get unstuck, you know. So uh, it, it's, it's the argument that by, uh, by providing clean needles, by providing Narcan, by um, uh, passing 911 Good Samaritans bills that we're somehow promoting drug use, is 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 incorrect. It it is the first line of communication and can oftentimes lead to uh, lower lower uses, uh, lower percentage of uses. Um, certainly, HIV Hep C uh, down uh, because of uh, needle exchange programs, um, and and they saw that in Portugal as well when they decriminalized um, much lower rates of HIV Hep C. Um, so. It's it's to you and me. It, it, it seems like it's so obvious, uh, but now it's breaking through those layers of stigma so that people uh, can really see things in another light. And I think we've been so pummeled by fear tactics and scare tactics um, that we haven't spoken out. Um, but I think the tide is turning. Well, when you look at the media portrayal of anyone that uses uh, opiates, especially anyone that uses things like heroin, um, they're just monsters and demons, and they're not human at all. It's, I mean, in the media propaganda, if you actually do things like work in needle exchange and hand out needles, you see as every different kind of person in the world comes in to get clean needles. There's a nice dressed guy that you can see. He's a businessman. He's, uh, you know, in his Mm -hmm. suit. And there's also people that are totally down and out. Uh, There's a whole cross-section of humanity there. Right, right. And these are all uh, somebody's sons and daughters. (laughs) That's why I always feel motherly, you know, uh, uh, about this. Uh, They're not throwaway people. They're not bad people. They're... Um, they're people that need uh, some assistance. And, you know, I always say, uh, Hillary Clinton said it takes a village to raise a child. I always say it takes a community of caring and compassionate people to help uh, people who are struggling with um, uh, alcohol and drug uh, addiction um, to to find their way. And, and, you know, and especially we've got so many people coming out of prisons now. You know, we, we, if we lock them up, to, at some point they have to come out of it. <laughs> You know, and they're coming out with uh, having lost so much of their lives, having been exposed to so much violence and and anger and anger, so much anger, and um, and 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 then having to try to find their way. We need our society to be compassionate and to embrace people so that they can find to help them find their way. So it, it takes it takes all of us, uh, uh, parents, uh, family members, teachers. Uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, all of us, the community, to to help solve this problem and to embrace people with problems so that they can, you know, reclaim their lives. Now, I know you advocate treatment instead of our incarceration, but are all drug treatments created equal or are some better than others and are some pretty bad? 
Well, it's interesting. When we first started a new path, we had three prongs, and the first one was treatment instead of incarceration for nonviolent drug offenders, treatment behind bars if it was the second one was treatment behind bars if the nature of their uh, <coughs> their crime was violent or serious, and then the third one was um, uh, resources, you know, uh, for for them coming out of a structured environment to help them reassimilate. Um, so, so in the beginning, it definitely was treatment instead of incarceration. And then it sort of broadened to more of a therapeutic, restorative policies rather than punitive uh, policies. And and you know, we we say we must stop criminalizing and stigmatizing people who use drugs or, or who have uh, addictive problems with drugs. Um, so, but to answer your question. Um, no, I don't. I don't think all treatments are uh, centers are alike. But we we don't advocate necessarily for one one format over another. We just add, add, because I, here I've got a son who's probably been in eleven different programs, and I won't say that one program was good or one program was bad. I would just say that that he hasn't found the one that actually clicked for him at the timing where it could click for him. But I feel like each each episode was a he might have learned a piece of of a puzzle that he can put it all together. If the good news is he's still alive, and so there's always still hope. Um, so we don't advocate for any particular uh, treatment. What I do see is that we're putting people into treatment, this mandating treatment, and this is the flaw here, who don't really need treatment. Mm-hmm. Who who maybe use use drugs and get caught, or a college kid who maybe you know was at a party and used drugs, but but isn't probably going to continue that career of using drugs, right? But we're mm-hmm. spending all kinds of resources on this kid that we haven't even determined that he has a, a drug problem. He just used drugs. So um, it, it's uh, we really need to relook at that because there's not. I mean, it's a serious problem for you know some people, but not for all of people. And and we're wasting wasting resources, not just on prison and the criminal justice system, but also on on treatment for those that that really don't need it. They're just being forced into it. Yeah, it's kind of a wrong-headed approach. Well, it's not kind of. It's totally a wrong-headed approach. But we know from research there are large numbers of people that will shoot heroin on the weekends and they'll never touch it during the week. Uh, Norman Zinberg did all this research on recreational heroin users, recreational opiate users versus addicted users. And we know there's a lot of recreational users. Why should you give them treatment when they don't have an addiction or put them in prison for when it's okay to, you know, get loaded on alcohol on, on the weekend as long mm-hmm. as you're not hurting anybody. And we know of cases like, um, I forget his name, the, the guy that founded John Hopkins Hospital, the chief surgeon who was a lifelong morphine addict. And, hmm. you know, he wrote about it in his will. Basically, they found out after he was dead because he was a perfect surgeon. You know, people can be even addicted and functional in their very functional people. So, right. right. But we're seeing this particular with with people who are using marijuana right now. I mean, we're just really, really wasting our resources. And um, and and you're right. There are recreational users of just about every every drug. And if they're not harming anybody else and they're functioning and you know, um, and independent, uh, what is our business? You know, it's it's uh, so. I would certainly agree with you there. And, um, mm-hmm. there, there's even recreational cigarette smokers, and I can't understand them at all. They go to the bar on Saturday, have a couple cigarettes with their drinks, and then don't smoke again the whole rest of the week. You know, for me as an ex-cigarette addict who is totally addicted, it's like, you know, how can you people even exist? Yeah. But they, they do. I know, I know, I know. No, I, I agree with you. We're just spending so much money in the wrong direction now, and and when there is clearly a need for more treatment for people who are stuck, um, and in their addiction, and and we need to have more varied uh, treatment choices. You know, what I see happening with my younger son, who you know is a chronic relapser, is that 
he's looked at when he relapses as, oh, you know, you're, you're good for nothing, you did it again. Now we have to start from the beginning. Well, I'm wondering why we have to start from the beginning all the time. He's also clearly bright, and he could recite, you know, the 12 steps, and he knows all, he could run the little meetings himself, you know, mm-hmm. but he hasn't been able to apply it to himself. There there should be a way that, that um, and, and I think we're starting to see that, you know, uh, that you don't have to start from the bottom. He doesn't have to go into a room with four other guys and live through nine months of, you know, roommates who snore and, you know, whatever, um, and, and and have his life taken away. But we're looking at more graduated, you know, responses to relapse. And, and, and that's where we should be spending our money is how, how do we – how do we help people to do the best they possibly can with their lives? And maybe for some that's abstinence and some it's just, uh, you know, a reduction of use. Or in, in my son's case, uh, he again, he's been using uh, needles for so long, it's really affected his health, his physical health. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a, a methadone maintenance is, is a real good option. Suboxone is a good option. Mm-hmm. Um, anything to stop sticking needles in his arms, you know. It's, I, I you hate to, I, I sound like I'm talking um, dispassionately and, and, and crudely, but I, but I mean, I, I want, I want my kids and I want my, I want other people's kids to stay alive. And that's the, and I want them to find a way to have a meaningful, independent life. And that's, and I think the only way we can do that is to approach this in a non-judgmental way and to use science-based, um, intelligent, compassionate thinking about it. Yeah, and I think uh, we need science-based, uh, intelligent, compassionate treatment programs, which Unfortunately, in my experience, are still very much in the minority, although there are many more now than there were 10 years ago. But uh, one thing the Drug Policy Alliance has been talking about in their last couple of conferences I've heard is, you know, they were also very much about treatment instead of incarceration, but they've been talking about, well, not all treatments are equal. We need treatments that are compassionate and evidence-based and, you know, this thing, you know, the old 12-step thing of, oh, you had, you know, one drink of beer a year back down to, you know, day zero, you're starting all over again. Um, That's just, that's crazy. Um, My point exactly. And we have to stop using the 12-step program, which is very, very helpful to some people as as a treatment program, which which it isn't. And, And so I think we've been mandating people to 12 steps, which just sort of waters down a, a program that's very effective for people who 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 use it uh, voluntarily um, and, and as uh, you know a support system. But uh, it, it and it and I think that I think the twelve step programs can be used very nicely alongside treatment program, but can't be substituted for uh, for treatment programs. Yeah, it shouldn't it shouldn't constitute the content of treatment as it does exactly. in the Minnesota model. Um, I mean, twelve step is essentially a religion, as much as they say it's spiritual, not religious. It's a religion. I believe people have a right to choose their own religious beliefs, and you know, if that's if they want to choose the twelve step religion, that's okay. I won't argue with them. It's certainly uh, one. It's one that I find very distasteful personally, but I, I gotta go into all that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, seriously, we need some evidence-based treatment. We need quality treatment. Um, you mentioned relapse. Uh, Alan Marlatt did wonderful research in relapse prevention. And the most important thing is that people not beat themselves up, not feel ashamed of their relapse, um, and realize, well, this is a slip, and a small slip doesn't have to turn into a major relapse. You can stop okay. immediately and get right back on the path. And, you know, that was a huge amount of uh, his research and you know, some treatment programs are starting to teach that, and it's really useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the the trouble also is it's so hard to uh, to access treatment. I mean, in, unless you have a, a lot of money or uh, <clears throat> unless you get caught up in the criminal justice system where you're mandated to treatment, <laughs> um, you know, it's very hard to, to get any. Uh, now programs are 28 days long, which, you know, is really not long enough, and we don't have a, a real continuum of care where it goes from detox to, to rehab to a sober living or, 
you know, um, uh, programs that help to fill in the gaps of what what they're they missed, which may be anger management, maybe you know a high school degree or whatever it is. We just don't have a an integrated um, continuum of of care, and um, and it's and again, I would say I know the economy's bad, but we're spending a huge amount of dollars on a criminal justice system that's totally you know, ineffective in solving this problem, and we're wasting beds that um, on people that should never be behind bars, shouldn't you know, and uh, wasting a huge amount of money of uh, in the court system, um, sending them through the court system. When really prisons, in my mind, were made to uh, lock up people who are endangered to society, which would mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a certain amount of violence, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, we've got, you know, it's our prisons are teeming with nonviolent drug offenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that money should be going where it can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do another little plug right now for my friend's book. Ann Fletcher wrote a book called Inside Rehab, which came out uh, quite recently, a couple months ago. We had her on the show a couple months ago to talk about it. It's a really good book about what works in treatment or what doesn't. And some things are surprising. Um, By and large, outpatient treatment is as effective as inpatient at a tiny fraction of the cost. Um, And these, these luxury rehab, $60,000 a month crazy places, they're, they're no better than, uh, in many cases, they're far worse than the one that's run by the city that you do on the outpatient basis that's treating the poorest people in the neighborhood. Well, and, and I think, uh, again, there's so many levels of, of uh, drug use, drug uh, misuse, uh, and, then, and then drug addiction. And, you know, for somebody like my child, I think he, he needed, he needed a, a, an inpatient rehabilitation and, and would now, too, because he needs some medical um, services that go along with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think in it, when you have co-occurring disorders, which so many do, but but the, the but the problem is we're lopping them all into those expensive uh, you know putting the money in, in, into expensive inpatient when many people um, don't have that level of the disorder if you will that requires that um, the inpatient and and I think um, sometimes it's just uh, you, you don't know where to put the person while they're going through that you know through the outpatient and and um, and they and maybe they need uh, to to be removed from the drugs for a longer period of time to do just flat out clean out. Um, but, um, yeah, I, and I, I've, I heard her interviewed and I have the book on my desk and I haven't read it yet. I have, I must admit, but it is on my desk and one of my must reads. Um, because yeah, and they call it the, the, you know, they call it the criminal justice, uh, the industrial, uh, complex. We're also starting to talk about the healthcare industrial complex. You know, <laughs> you know, there really needs to be some improvement there as well, and and we, and we need to choose and uh, more wisely who who needs uh, uh, you know inpatient and who needs outpatient, and and stop mm-hmm. wasting so, so many resources. Well, a lot of the experts said that the, there might be a place for inpatient for some, a, a minority though. Uh, most people will do better without patient, and you know one of the problems with inpatient is you're separated from your environment, and then you get thrown right back into your environment when it ends. Is most of them have no transition at all, and you know yeah, it's easy to use when you're outside of your using environment. You get thrown right back into the thing again. That's a problem if there's no follow up, which most of the inpatients don't have. Right, uh, and certainly no continuum of care, no no graduated steps towards. Um, you know, freedom where they feel you know they're they're really ready to handle themselves and hand, handle all the triggers and that and that type of thing. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. So I mean, Jesus, these people that sell these sixty thousand dollar a month rehabs—they just—they're such crooks. They make my blood boil. You know. <laughs> well, you know, and and it, what's really sad is that. Uh, families are mortgaging their homes, and um, we'll do. We, we as parents will do anything, anything to save our kids' lives, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we're thinking that that, that it's going to be fixed 
somehow, you know, that there's going to be an answer. And, and, um, and, and, but guess what? It's a chronic relapsing disorder, you know, so the chances of, of getting it on one 28 uh, day stay that costs, um, you know, that, that, that you had to mortgage your home for, what are you going to do the next time you relapse? You know, so it's, um, and I'm one of those people that 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 have paid. I could have sent my both of my kids to the best colleges with the money I spend on this, you know. And again, you know, I'm not. I, I never I went never went to those really expensive ones because I never had that kind of money. But I did whatever I could to get them into uh, into recovery, and and you know, just kept a, uh, and still do kept a, a, a bank account for when they say, I really need help, I, you know. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we need to be realistic about this. I mean, when they studied cigarette smokers, cigarette smokers are one of the easiest or were one of the easiest populations to study because it was not stigmatized at all. Now it's starting to be very uncool, but, you know, when Prochaska was studying in the 80s, you know, e- even now, you know, there's a huge difference between a cigarette smoker and a, and a heroin injector. But when you know, but people are really open about talking about their smoking, and they found you know when people quit smoking cigarettes, it took on the average five tries. That's right. that's reasonable. It's reasonable. Only one person in twenty quit on the first try. That's the normal kind of approach to overcoming this bad habit that we call addiction. It takes several tries. Uh, relapses tend to get you know less and less severe as time goes on, unless you tell people that you're back to zero and you have to beat yourself up and you're horrible because you relapsed, well, then the relapses become very bad. But if you say, mm-hmm. um, well, this happens, but you don't have, you can get right back on your horse, right back on your abstinence program or your moderation program, whatever program you're following, you know, if people can forgive themselves and move on, they can actually move towards this point of recovery where they're no longer using their drugs alcohol, cigarettes, whatever, in a problematic manner. They've either quit or they've uh, discovered some form of moderation that they can live with. Right, right. And and not just, uh, that's a good point about forgiving themselves, but we also have to forgive them. You know, that there's there's just so much. There's other chronic relapsing disorders where there's no anger involved. Like, we don't, we don't really get terribly mad at the, the diabetic who, you know, decides to eat cake and throws himself off you know um but we certainly get angry at at at, at the, the the chronic relapsing you know disorder of addiction of addiction we're mad at the people and that's what makes it so much worse it's not just watching somebody really flounder and 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 you kind of destroy their lives in in, in a maze of addictive illness but it's also that as society everybody seems to be angry at them they want to you know just discount them as just being a bad person and um and if, as a parent that's that's one of the most painful things and you know when you're talking about speaking to denise cohen who who lost her son to um an overdose death uh, part of the reason that she wanted to start her you know a grasp uh, which which actually was started by a couple in san diego years before that um but was because even the self help groups the 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 dealing with um grief groups there was she felt stigmatized um because her son died of an overdose not just you know car mm-hmm, accident mm-hmm. or something like that but that there, there was this still the stigma hanging, hanging over the head so so um so she's you know working with with uh, mothers who mothers and parents who have lost kids to overdose um who can understand that 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 absolute exquisite pain of 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 losing a child to a um something that uh, is so highly stigmatized i know i know how that goes that they say i mean i've talked to denise and they say in the normal support groups the regular grief support groups you go in and you say my son died of an overdose and they say well you must have been a terrible parent because he was using drugs right exactly <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I, one of my lines is, uh, addiction is not a disease of uh, poor parenting. You know, it is, it's a legitimate disease, but, um, it, you know, there can be some poor parents in the mix, but that's not the issue. And I think we were all sort of discounted. When we started A New Path, I felt like nobody was even talking to me, to parents, because we we must have been part of the problem. 
Um, and even if we felt like we were we were good parents, we gave our kids every opportunity. We tried as hard as we could to be as perfect as we possibly could. And of course, nobody can be perfect parents. You know, we don't. We're doing this oftentimes for the first time or second time, and you know what I mean. It's it, but um, it, it, there was that that uh, feeling that we were being blamed and shamed uh, for our kids' problems, and um, and that and that's that was a lot of the reason that I started speaking out to, to was that we needed to get this out of the closet and um, say no, no. It's um, I remember a counselor once telling me, you know, this would have happened to your son whether he was your child or whether he was somebody else's child. His makeup, his, his, uh, you know, inclination towards this uh, was his. And it, and it felt like a kind of a, a, a burden was taken off of me. I, that, um, I thought I had been a good parent. I thought I'd tried to do everything, and just saying, you know, sort of, it wasn't your fault. And and I know in twelve steps, you're 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 taught to realize that it's not your fault. But I think a lot of parents do embrace that. Um, was there something more I could have done? What more could I have done? You know, and I and and I will. I'm not saying I'm past that. I will continue to wake up every morning and say, is there something more I can be done, doing to to help my son? But I think parents do that that's and i don't think we need labels like codependent to be thrown at us or enablers to be thrown at us you know i think um mothers love their kids and are happy when their happy kids are happy we would like to be happy whether their kids our kids are happy or not whether our kids are god forbid dead or alive um that's our responsibility but still we we as parents we do we care a lot about if our children are doing okay. Well, it looks like we're out of time, but where can we find you on the Internet? Oh, thank you. Um, there's We have two websites. Um, the, the, the main website for A New Path is www.anewpathsite.org. Unfortunately, that one's hard to remember, um, but you can go directly to the Moms United site, which is www.momsunited.net, and you can connect to the PATH site there. Um, and I would really encourage you all to get involved in any level that you'd like to, you know, sign sign our Moms United Bill of Rights, uh, become a representative of Moms United if you would like to, um, get involved in any way that you that that that, that you can. And and both um, uh, New PATH and um, Moms United are on Facebook. And Moms United has a pretty um, healthy uh conversation going on you know all the time if you want to just talk to other parents and connect okay thank you very much for being our guest this evening gretchen burns bergman well thank you so much and thank you for the work you're doing as well okay everyone good night and we will see you all next week